0: I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theatre scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theatre scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theatre creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be... Stageworthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Liza Paul is a storyteller, comedian, curator, and producer. She is also Associate Artistic Director at the Theatre Centre. She joined me to talk about the Theatre Center's 2023 Comedy is Art Festival, running from October 24th to 28th at the Theatre Centre. In this conversation, we talk about how comedy is underfunded in Canada, the courage it takes to risk failure on stage in front of an audience, Liza's theatre journey, and much more. Here's our conversation. So we're going to be talking about the 2023 Comedy is Art Festival at the Theatre Centre, presented by the Theatre Centre. And comedy gets a bit of a a short shrift in the theatre world. Um, it is largely underfunded and I don't think it gets in, I mean, to, I don't want to quote Rodney Dangerfield, but he doesn't get a whole lot of respect <laughs> and it kind of deserves it because there's a lot that has come out of the Canadian comedy scene. In, in your opinion, what makes comedy important?
1: I think that comedy is important because it is, it it's a, it's a great equalizer as far as art forms go. All you need is a voice and an idea and some time to put those things together to craft something. You know, uh, music lessons can be prohibitively expensive, for example. You have to have an instrument. You need a teacher. Uh, Theater also can be expensive. Like, there is not a lot of equal opportunity when it comes to a lot of the art forms that, you know, people are into. Um, I would say that for better or for worse, which I'm sure we'll get into later, comedy is at least accessible to people in a way that uh, other art forms might not be
0: sure i mean there's various there's different kinds of of, of comedies people could do some, uh, stand-up and they can do amateur nights or things like that and there's there's sketch comedy there's lots of sketch comedy in this city you have it a bad dog in other places um in terms of in terms of the the the, the funding of uh, of of comedy in canada where do you see it as, as something that, that we, have, we have missed the mark on?
1: You know, I was just having this conversation, and I, I, I'm curious about the, the missing the mark myself. I wonder sometimes if it's just that comedy is so fun and funny, if people are like, this doesn't need any money. Like, it's doing fine. It's great. People are having a good time. They're doing what they're doing. And uh, what I think maybe gets most is that it's so much work. It's so much work to see if a joke has landed. And, you know, unlike uh, other professional art forms like theater, for example, you don't get the benefit of, okay, I've been cast in this show. Now I'm going to be in rehearsal for three or four or five weeks, and I'm going to be getting paid for each of those three, four, or five weeks. Never mind when we get into the run, I'll be getting paid for that too. A comedian, you know, you write your joke, you test it out, and you test it out unpaid you know you you take yourself to the open mic you see if the joke works there you bring it home you refine it you go over the recording you made of yourself to listen to when people were laughing and i think that that a lot of that work is invisible i think that people aren't familiar with what it takes to make a joke land like how many times you have to put a thing into the world before you've crafted it to its finest most hilarious point and i feel like You know, comedy artists are encouraged, for the most part, to apply for funding as theatre artists. But in those cases, these artists are not being judged by a jury of their peers. The people on the the theatre panel don't know who these comedians are, and why should they? It's a totally different art form. And we don't ask uh, dancers, for example, to apply as writers. So I don't really know why there's that, you know, there's a disconnect there, and I'm not sure why.
0: I mean I think that uh, some of the problem also falls with the fact that uh, we don't we don't as far as theater goes a lot of times we don't respect the comedy we want our theater to be important especially when we're applying for funding it's got to be important if we're going to fund this and while comedy is important it doesn't have that giant giant air quotes important that that we often look for or that people often look for in theater for that that is awarded grants and that may be th- a thing that is also missing Um, sometimes, uh, we don't respect the fact that it's good to just have fun sometimes in, in that world.
1: Preach. It's very true. People don't give good times enough respect. And I think that, I think that often, you know, people confuse sad or serious or depressing with important, like those things are not necessarily synonymous and, Which is not to say that important things cannot be sad or serious or depressing. I'm saying it's not that they must be those things. And I think that a a lot of some, you know, the most salient messages that people have kind of absorbed, they come from comedy. They come from kind of mainstream comedians, just making commentary on the way people are living and, 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 and opening people's eyes to different ways of seeing the world. And that's really valuable. That's really valuable. And so I'm not really sure, you know, I don't know. I don't I don't know why comedy doesn't get the, the rap it deserves.
0: Yeah, I, I I don't understand either because, you know, it's it's all well and good to to tell people exactly what you're telling them. Um, but but comedy uh comes at it from the side and sort of like gets in and lets somebody and tells you what you're telling, but without having to hit you over the head with it. You can come around the corner and and make somebody Realize the importance without having to be told. Now this is important. It just sort of it, it comes in and uh, it sort of like infects the brain in a in a in a in a fun way.
1: Yeah, it's a craft. It's it's the art of opening somebody up so that you have a, a soft spot for this message to land. In my opinion, I mean, there are lots of things that comedy can do, but I think that's definitely one of them.
0: Yeah, you were mentioning about how. Um, comedians uh when they're they're honing their joke or they're honing their set um they not only you know they don't get they often they, they do it for free they do it they do it they do it in public uh actors who are given their their words even writers they have a workshop and maybe a small group of people will see that workshop um comedians fail in public where in theater we often fail behind closed doors and then we can say okay i can go back and work on that but a comedian fails with the joke they think is is might work in front of an audience and has to deal with crickets or whatever comes with it. Um, and and that takes a certain amount of bravery that that uh, I, I certainly don't have.
1: <laughs> it, it takes a tremendous amount of bravery. you really have to be determined. you really have to be receptive. you know, you have to be ready to put this material out there. And, and see you know what people how people respond to it and that that's a blessing and a curse because on the one hand you might write a joke that you think is hilarious and you say it and it, it gets no laughs but then this thing that you had as a throwaway comment is then that's actually the diamond in the rough and you there's no way to know that until you've put it in front of people. and that's why I, I do believe that comedy is one of the bravest art forms there is because you don't get to hide there is no Let me just rehearse this and rehearse this and rehearse this until I have it perfect. And then I'll do my concert. No, you have to just keep putting it out there until it is perfect and then continue to share it.
0: Yeah, it's amazing that when you think about, you know, people do when people are are doing, working towards like an hour for their their Netflix special or whatever it is. They've done hundreds of hours in little clubs um, doing this material over and over and over again. To do the comedy special, and then probably never do the those jokes again because they're out there, um, and it's it's like all that work for a one time thing that some people, that a bunch of people are going to see, but then you never revisit that material, which is <laughs> like just just almost tragic sometimes.
1: Isn't this the nature of everything people love? I mean, think about the concerts that people are putting on. Like Beyonce is never doing Renaissance again. Like this is it. It's never coming back. The meals that you love—it takes hours and hours. You get the food, you prepare the food, and then, in depending how quickly you eat, eight minutes, twelve minutes, seventeen minutes—it's gone, never to be seen again. I feel like that's a, a hallmark of of something uh, of all the stuff that people enjoy. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, with with uh, you know trying out a material on stage, one of my favorite podcasts—it's called Good Ones. It's a podcast where. Uh, the host Jesse David Fox in interviews comedians and often like about the like going like really into the, the weeds about a particular joke but near the end of the show he'll always ask like what's a joke that you've never been able to get to work but you will go to your grave convinced that this is a funny joke and it's always fascinating to hear like the joke that, that a comedian keeps like I have tried this for 10 years and no audience thinks it's funny but I swear it's hilarious and again failing on stage just just determined to make this joke work and and, and and seeing it not.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really something like that. It, there is a there's a, a, a very specific quality I think all comedians have, which is just you have to love it. You have to love it, particularly in this circumstance, in this city, in this country where it's not it's not a funded art form. So if you're not doing it for the money, then you you have to be doing it for the love and love makes all of us do wild things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever see the documentary Tig? No, I didn't. Tig Notaro through that um in addition to the like the whole story she's telling. You see her work through a joke from the first time that you see it and then you see like many times she revisits that joke until finally it kills. And it's a fascinating piece of like oh okay, so she started with an idea and then she failed a million times before it became funny. Um, and it's it's one of those interesting, like, see how just the slightest word tweak or timing thing is the thing that it took to make it to make it actually work as a, as a bit.
1: Yeah, because comedy is art. Like, that's the truth of it. And one of the best things about it, it's like anything that anyone does with a virtuosity, you 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 do it and it looks so easy it looks so off the cuff it's like oh this idea just occurred to me not i've workshopped this joke for years actually in front of hundreds of people and now finally it is perfect
0: that's i mean that's the thing is is making it sound and convincing an audience that this is the moment that like this is happening organically like i'm making this up um yeah. and i know there are plenty of comedians who have what seems like a, a, a an improvised throwaway moment which is carefully crafted and put together. And it always feels like it's like something on the cuff, but they've planned it and it works every time because it feels like a throwaway. That's the consummate performance right there. Just to be like, I made this up on the spot. I've been doing it uh, for about a thousand times now, but I made it up on the spot.
1: Yeah, that's how it has to feel. I mean, I, uh, my background is in theater. I started working in the arts, uh, with soul pepper theater company in 2004. So that's a long time ago. And I remember being so impressed by the scale of the productions and how much, um, artistry went into everything. You know, here's the lighting designer. Here's the set designer, the costume designer. Here are these artists rehearsing for weeks and weeks. Here's the director. Here's all this stuff. And all these resources that go towards making this thing amazing. And then I left that organization because I wanted to become more on the performing side of things. And so I was doing a show called Pumice French for Apple, which was a theatrical offering, but it was very comedic in nature. And that was one of the things where I was like, okay, yeah, people can laugh in the theater. I'm a Jamaican background and so. There was a lot of Patois in the show. My, my scene partner and co-creator of the show, Bahia Watson is of Guyanese descent. And so the two of us were just like throwing all our caribbean into the mix of the thing. And we were like, yes, this works. And then I started working with the theater center. And while I was working with the theater center, I was also doing stuff with second city. So I was taking courses, trying to figure out how to maybe unlock a little bit more of that piece of my craft. And while I was um, doing that, I would go into these clubs and start to do stand-up on my own. And I was like, why is this so hard? Like, why is there so much work? And why am I getting paid in drink tickets? And so when I was working at the theater center, I was curating the cafe bar. I mean, I still am working at the theater center. My job has changed. But as curator of the cafe bar space, I started to invite comedians to perform there because I was like, listen... We still can't pay you, but we can give you this room for free. So you don't have to earn something to at least break even. Like you're at zero, not negative. So that's already a plus for a comedian. And then from there, you can invite an audience. You can collect the whole door. We don't want anything to do with it. And then that is kind of how the, the festival was born. We got to do a thing where the artistic director of the, the, of the theater center was like, Liza, we have a whole in october of 2019 in the main space do you want to invite some artists in here and i was like yes i would love to do that so we we programmed the first ever comedy is art and that one was one that had still zero funding but we did have the resource of the space so we were able to invite all these people and we're like listen you get the room we'll give you technical support you can have time to rehearse which is a luxury like that's definitely a luxury in this pocket of the world and then you can keep all the, all the box office. We want none of it. And then we started to be able to offer something that was, we hope at least that offered somebody something a little bit more, um, supported. I think that comedy bar and bad dog and second city, they've all been doing so much for the comedy scene in this city. And what, what we're hoping to do at the theater center is just give it, give people, for example, maybe listeners of this show. Who are more accustomed to hearing reviews of theater or talking about theater maybe just bridge the gap a little bit so that you can see like theater yes it, it is a huge undertaking but comedy is too they both happen on a stage they're both live they're both something that um h- brings people together and 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 comedy is not easier it's not easier than theater not by a long shot
0: no because we get rehearsals in in in, in theater um, I want to. I want to go back to uh, the 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 moment when you started doing stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, what was how did how did what did you think of stand up when you decided to do it? How did you think it was easy? Did you have things planned out? What 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 was the what what did you how did you start and what what did you learn after after doing it?
1: Okay, well, I will tell you the first time I ever did stand up, I was terrified. I was terrified. But much like I felt when I first got into storytelling overall, which I did uh, at the Wata Theater with Debbie Young years ago, I I had a storytelling residency there and I remember my first time performing ever. I thought my heart was going to come out of my nose, like I did not understand what was happening inside of my body. And I just remembered standing there and telling myself, nobody made you do this. You signed up for this. You asked for this. And now this is part of this. And I had a similar feeling when I did stand-up for the first time. I, I had been told on a number of occasions, working with Debbie that the, the, my writing style was comedic. Like it was as though I was writing stand-up comedy, even though that is not what I was writing. So I was like, okay, maybe this is a thing for me to get into. And it was the same, the same feeling of just abject terror. And it was the thing that I've never, I've never said words in public so quickly ever in my life like I didn't give anything room to breathe I just like I rehearsed and I rehearsed and I rehearsed and I think you know having done that and having done other stand up in my life I didn't leave room for a single like a laugh I didn't leave room for anything I was just so scared because theater audiences are quite generous Quality art audiences are maybe not always that generous like it's a different they're different animals Luckily, the the house I played to was a generous house, and it was fine. And I got introduced as somebody whose first time it was, so that I think they were gentle with me. But I I just remember feeling like I needed to be as prepared as I possibly could be. I I scrubbed some of my lines. I, I just it was very terrifying, and I was so happy afterwards. I was so pleased, and I was like, okay, I, I could do this again. And maybe if I do it again, I could just slow down a little bit.
0: But I, I I think that a lot of times people don't realize because a a good comedian feels at ease on stage, like they seem like they're just pretty relaxed. They're they're whatever their persona is, or they feel they like they command the stage. Um, and I don't think people realize how nerve wracking it is to get up in front of an audience and just have things even more than a than like a, a one person show where you're you know you've rehearsed it. Um, this is like a bit harder because everybody in that room is like, all right, be funny.
1: Make me laugh. I know. (laughs) It's terrifying. It's really very intimidating. But when you find that groove, when you get in the pocket and when you get the audience on your side, there are a few things I think in life more gratifying than that. And also, you know, your mission as a person who is trying to do this is to make people laugh. So when it happens, it's like the best feeling in the world.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it. that's why people keep doing it, right? That getting the laugh is addictive. Uh, so, and, you know, I, if it wasn't for that, uh, m- most comedians would probably never do it again because <laughs> it's certainly not doing it for the money. No, it's definitely not for the money. That's why I'm like, you know what? If, if people
1: are working this hard for nothing, then I feel like it's, it's incumbent upon us to show up. Like, we have to show up for these people who are working so hard yeah. for nothing. Although I'm happy to report that Now that we have a funder for Comedy as Art, people are not doing it for nothing anymore. Rather than giving them the box office, we just pay them. We pay them well. This is, this is one of the things that I hold very near and dear to my heart. Cause I'm like, having done both of these things, having occupied both spaces and, and from a number of different vantage points, I've had the privilege of seeing this. It is worth the money. It is worth paying people to be able to do this because. What are you going to do? Imagine a world where no one's trying to make you laugh, where nothing's funny. Yeah.
0: That sucks. That, what a boring place that would be. Absolutely. <laughs> now, for the first uh, 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 for the first Comedy is Art in 2019, um, how did you curate that? Or did you just like say, who wants to come perform? How did that, how did it come together? And how is that different from the 2023 edition of Comedy is Art?
1: This is a great question. So 2019... 2019- was basically uh, all the people who had come through the cafe space. As I mentioned, I was curating that space, and I just kept my eyes open. I would be working the bar, I would be watching, seeing who's who and what's what, and who, most importantly uh, to me, as far as the curatorial aspect of this festival goes, was intelligent in their humor. There are a lot of comedians in the world who prefer to punch down, who whose humor is. Kind of ugly, for lack of a better word. And I I will be the first to tell you I'm not a prude. I don't believe in censorship. I don't believe in any of that. But I do believe in intelligent humor. I would like it if the person who is taking my time and also my money for me to sit there and watch them is not making me cringe, is not making me uncomfortable, is not making fun of anybody in the audience. So I always try to look for people whose humor is coming at something from a different angle and whose intelligence is evident. And so having had the privilege of being able to invite people into the cafe space, I was like, great. I've seen you. Would you like a main space spot? I've seen you. Would you like a main space spot? And then there were other artists who I had come across just by going to their shows and seeing them or having met them in the community. And I would offer those people spots, too. What I would say is different now is that um, the pandemic having done what it did and me no longer having that job necessarily of inviting comedians into the cafe, the reach is a little bit broader. Uh, I've been doing this a little bit longer so I can see there are more people. And then there are, there are artists who have performed in festivals past as part of someone else's show that, that I have invited to do their own show. So it's kind of, um, it, it, it begets itself. For, for lack of a better way of explaining it
0: absolutely absolutely now um looking at, at at this year's festival um which starts on October 24th is that right Tuesday October 24th you got um it. one of the things that 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 you know there's, it's there's it's quite a you've got some sketch comedy you've got you've got music then comedy you've got some duos. what stands out for you about about this year's about this year's uh, festival?
1: Well, I will tell you that curating this festival is like the highlight of my career. I love it. I love having the opportunity to invite all these people who I think are so fun and funny and invite audiences to come and see all these people. And I I think the highlight remains for me that every year is totally different than the year before and that every night is totally different than the night that precedes it or follows it. So the first night of the festival is um, two solo shows back to back. The first one features Aliyah Kanani, and she is a hilarious stand-up comedian who I met when I was at Second City. And she has just come off this wild fringe tour where she's getting patrons pick and best of fringe and all this stuff. And I wanted to pair her with Al Val, who's another hilarious comedian, because they both have such unique perspectives and both such different vibes. But I feel like their energy in one night is going to be such a blast. And I feel like one of the things that I love about this festival is that it's kind of comedy of all sorts. I know Al is going to bring her guitar and she's just going to shred it while she's riffing on all things uh, that life has to offer. And then there are people like the Tita Collective who do Filipina-based sketch comedy and they are hilarious. And then there's also Music Then Comedy, which is improv artists. And then there's Keisha Brownie doing her Minority Report, which is she tries to make space for artists of color, particularly Black artists. And that's going to have sketch and stand-up. And then also Kevin Shawanda, who does the closing night of the festival, he's an Indigenous artist. And he also likes to invite Indigenous artists onto his bill. Not exclusively, but that's part of it. And he has really tried to embed this idea of it being intertribal. And what does it mean when people come together for a powwow? Which I'm like, that's a pretty diverse offering you know and i feel like there's something for everybody in in a festival that's curated
0: like that absolutely absolutely there's a lot there's a lot to that that festival um now uh, this is almost not fair to say what are you most looking forward to because that's like <laughs> I it, it would have to be like, which
1: of your children which of your you children like do you
0: like best which is not a fair question to ask anyone um <laughs> but um as far as, like, kicking it off, what do you hope to, what are you most looking forward to, not about the performance, what are you looking forward to audiences discovering from this festival? What are you looking forward to discovering yourself in this festival?
1: I think one of the things I'm most excited about, and this is, like, very selfish of me, but we just redid the bar at the theater center. It is a beautiful pink quartzite countertop with lighting that is to die for. And I'm really excited to be able to invite audiences back to this festival with this brand new bar in the building. So like Shameless Theater Center plug, the bar is beautiful. You will be drinking there. It's going to be great. But as far as the art goals, which I think is really the question that you're asking, what I look forward to is being able to invite both the artists and the audiences to a fully accessible, beautiful venue. And I look forward to the kind of cross-pollination that happens when The theater center's, you know, standard or traditional audience figures out that this festival is happening and comes to it, as well as the people who are kind of following all these comedians' careers and want to participate. And then, you know, just like the kind of random people that got dotted all through that. And when all those people come together and have a nice time, like, I love a room full of happy people. This is one of my life's greatest pleasures is bringing people together to all have fun. And so I think the thing I'm looking forward to most is the, the gift of a good time. And also, because that's my job, I get to have a good time too. That's <laughs> perfect.
0: So what more could you ask for?
1: Seriously, like, it's really nice work if you can get it.
0: There's something interesting that happens when uh, uh, an audience, when the traditional theater audience comes together with another audience. Um, I am reminded uh, many years ago, When uh, the the Canadian stage company did the Rocky Horror Show, which brought in their traditional audience with the Rocky Horror Show people who they are not the same group. Um, And it was a fascinating, like sitting in that audience, uh, it was fascinating uh, uh, because they had educational posters all over the place so that the subscribers didn't get upset when people shouted. And it was just like interesting because the energy was so different from anything that I think a lot of people had felt in that room. Um, And so like the idea of bringing like the the theater center's traditional audience uh, into like the with the with the comedians, the people who follow the comedians and just people who are comedy fans. That sounds like a really uh, exciting uh, 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 audience uh, uh, situation as well.
1: Yeah, it's super fun. Like my parents also come to every single show. So there is like a couple of septuagenarians in the mix and. Then there are a bunch of people who are just young and looking for a good time. And the ticket prices are so accessible that it really is something that anyone can come to. And for those older people who have maybe deeper pockets and want to support an art form that doesn't get it from its government, you can buy the $60 ticket, show up and show out, have a beautiful time. And there are drinks allowed in the theater. So if you're about that life, (laughs) you can really just turn up for a night and forget all your cares and be entertained.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Now Lisa, one of the things I want to I want to uh concentrate a little bit on you for a moment. I want to talk about your your background, your your theater experience. One of my one of the things that I do- often talk about on this show is the origin story for each each artist on the like what made you first go into this? You mentioned uh doing some work at Soulpepper uh for a while. So you you know, I think you you know you started in in like the an administrative side and then wanted to go more performing. But what first drew you to the theater.
1: Okay. Well, origin story. When I was a little kid, my parents had a friend who, and I'm not clear on this because I was like seven, so I don't know exactly what her official title would have been, but they had a friend who always hooked us up to go see things at young people's theater. So from a young age, I was in there watching Sharon, Lois and Bram, the elephant show, like I was in the mix watching these things and I always loved going to see shows but I kind of felt a little bit like not that they're all the same but I don't really know that these are for me then in 2004 when I started working at Soulpepper I was like oh I can see how when something's super specific it starts to feel really universal and so I really got um, the advantage of a very kind of like hands-on education about what theatre could be. But then in 2006, I went to go see Debbie Young's performance of Blood Clot. And I was like, hold on. You can do this in the theater. Like my girl had dance hall blaring in the space. She came up on stage and talked a whole Patois. And I was like, this, like this, this, I love this. I wanna do this. And so while I was working at Soul Pepper, Debbie actually was one of the first members of the Soul Pepper Academy. And um, I have had the strange fortune of being in celebrity circles for a lot of my life because my aunt was very, very involved in TIFF. Before it was TIFF, it was the Festival of Festivals. But just because I was rolling around with my aunt and my mom, I would meet, you know, Queen Latifah here or Leonardo DiCaprio there. And I was like, these are really cool things, but they're not making my heart stop. But when the bee came into the building, when I was working at Soul Pepper, I was like, oh, this is what that feels like to be starstruck, to be like, look, this person is so meaningful to my perception of the way a thing could be. And then um, she and I got to know each other. We struck up a friendship. And as she was continuing the program, she uh, decided that she was also going to start a theater company of her own. Now, this moment of hers coincided with my own moment of feeling like, okay, I'm doing a lot of writing contracts and supporting artists through their own processes, but I'm starting to feel like maybe I want to do something on, on that side of things myself. And so Debbie reached out to me and she said, you know, I'm starting this company and I'm interested in, in knowing whether you'd be um, down to do my, my PR. And I was like, okay. I said, thank you so much for thinking of me, but, Do you think that maybe we could talk? And she said, you know, I'm on the West Coast, my time zones are all different. But if you email me back, we can just keep the conversation going. And I said, okay. And then I put my whole life into this email where I was like, listen, I rate you as an artist, I think you're the most amazing. And uh, I, I'm really, I would do anything you asked of me. I've never done PR in my life. I would do it for you as long as that was fine with you, but. I feel like what I really want is to tell stories, and I don't know what that means, and I don't know how I'm going to do it, and I I have no idea even what you're going to make of me saying this, and I'll just end it there, and I hit send, and then I was like, (laughs) what have I done? Like, I just sent this thing to my mentor, and how is she going to respond? And then, I got an email back, and I will never forget the first words of this email. It just said, "Oh, you are fantastically wonderful. I can imagine this going many different ways. You can be a resident artist in my company. I have to go do a show. I'll write you back when it's done. And true to her word, three hours later, I got another email and she's like, yes, you're a resident artist now at the Wata Theater. And then we'll start on this. We're going to do this day. And that is really how that piece of my life kind of started to come into shape. And it was in doing that that I I was able to exercise my own dreams of, you know, embedding or not embedding imbuing my work with with west indianism you know like my dad is one of my favorite storytellers and my cousins are all so animated and so that that's how that started
0: um now you you mentioned like doing like some administrative work at salt pepper um how did you you started like you're doing like you saw some stuff at ypt and you're doing so you know you were sort of like around celebrities for a while and you ended up at at Pepper. Was admin something that you had thought that you would go into or did you fall into that?
1: Well, before I started working there, I was working at CIUT 89.5 and I was the assistant to the station manager there. And I would also take these uh, contract gigs at TIFF every September and I would work in the industry center. And there I was the assistant to the director of industry. So when I was, I had a good friend, a very good friend, Maxine Bailey, who really kind of has always been my, my second mother. She's always had a good eye on me. She's now at the Canadian Film Centre doing amazing things, as she does. But she, um, she happened to know that the executive director of Soul Pepper at the time was looking for an assistant. And my career that thus far, I mean a career, I was in my 20s and so not much of a career, it was just jobs, but it had consisted entirely of supporting executives, supporting whoever was in charge in terms of whatever it was they needed to do. And so when I went in for that interview, I made it very clear that I had no idea how theater worked, but Leslie, who was the woman I ended up working for, had never had an assistant, so we were a really good fit that way. Because I could just go in and be like, okay, well, these are the things I've been doing. Like, would you like to know about them? Because she is a fiercely independent woman. So was not particularly accustomed to anyone being up in her business by any means. And then, you know, I just got to be there. And I was there at a moment just before they broke ground at the Young Center in the distillery district. So I was there at a very seminal moment. Like, things were just all starting to blow up. So no, I did not imagine uh, any such thing happening for me, but I'm really happy it did.
0: Well, I mean, you sort of, you're currently associate artistic director at the theater center, so the admin is the, the leadership roles are still sort of coming your way. Um, you 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 mentioned working at the at the bar at 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 the theater center. How did uh, joining the theater center as an associate artistic director come about? Um, was that something you had in mind? Did you fall into it again? Like, like how did how did how did you choose that, or did it choose you?
1: It chose me one hundred percent. I think um, when I I got the job working at the cafe bar, uh, it was my friend Ravi was like, "Oh, they're they're hiring right now. They're looking for um, a mat leave position for the cafe bar. Why don't you you should check it out?" And I was like, "Okay." So I looked at the posting and. Um, it said very clearly like must have this experience and I did not have that experience so I didn't apply and then a week later Ashlyn, who at the time I think was the creative producer for the company wrote me and said I know Ravi sent you this posting why haven't you applied and I said well I can read and Ravi is my friend and I don't want to make him look bad because um, I know that I am not qualified for this job so I didn't apply and she's like okay Let's just say that you were qualified for the job. What would you do? And she's like, just email me and let me know. And so I ended up writing what turned out to be kind of a a manifesto. She'd asked me for a paragraph and I was like, listen, I'm obsessed with lighting, music, bringing people together. I love a good vibe. I think it's really important to welcome people when you're producing something. I think it's really important to remember that people's journey as it relates to the event begins the moment they hear about the thing. So what does the invitation look like? Who told them about it? What does it feel like when you get to the door of the building? What does it feel like once you're inside? Like, do you feel cared for? How do you feel when you leave? All of that is so important. And so then I went in and I had an interview there. And I was there and I met with Ashlyn and Zoe, who was the cafe manager at the time. And, you know, we got through all these kind of standard questions. And then we got to the one of like, what do you think would your, your greatest challenge will be? And I said, probably that I don't know what I'm doing and everything that comes along with that. And then I got the job. Oh, when I got the job, it was initially posted as cafe bar manager and curator. And I asked for one small tweak, which was, could I please be the cafe bar curator and manager? Because I really could see that that was where I was going to be able to exercise my 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 one of my greatest strengths, I think, which is bringing people together, finding space for people and making um making nice spaces for people. And, you know, as a racialized woman myself, it's very important to me that we get to have places that are welcoming and and beautiful. Not only welcoming but dingy or beautiful and unwelcoming. Like it's a weird Venn diagram that happens for a lot of people in the city. And I wanted it to be both welcoming, beautiful. So I was doing that, curating, inviting all the people, and then pandemic, So in 2020, when all my colleagues were like, oh, no, I don't know if I'm going to still have a job. And I was like, "Okay, you're the producer and you're the director of communications. And I'm sure there's producing and communicating still to be done here. But you know what there is not to be done here? Managing a cafe like that is not happening. We are closed. We are not anywhere near open. But then because I had been so kind of engaged in the curatorial piece, Ashlyn, God love Ashlyn, who is the artistic director and my boss, she found a, a way to make a case to keep me on the team, but promote me. So all the curatorial work I had been doing, she was like, listen, board of directors, like this is a perfectly reasonable shift to make. We'll, we'll make her the associate artistic director because she has been doing that kind of artistic work and that relationship building in the community and yeah, I don't, I really don't know. Like, I don't know what would have happened with no pandemic. I mean, I had an okay pandemic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is the most that anybody can hope for is an okay pandemic. Um, do you miss the cafe?
1: I miss it, but I'm still very in it. So I don't have to miss it. I I don't have to miss it the way I would if I were just 100% removed from it. Because I still, we are just ramping our curation of the cafe space back up so people have been popping in we did something called rap sheets which was a trivia night like 90s hip-hop and r&b trivia night there's um bad dog theaters have been working with us with a show that they do called they go low we go laugh and you know people are finding the space again and the comedians who are in there are like oh it's beautiful can we come so it's all it's coming back and I work with a wonderful woman there, Shanot um, and she is now the cafe bar manager. So she deals with the wording of the milk and doing the schedule, all the stuff I used to do. And I focus on artistic stuff for the theater center overall and the cafe in particular.
0: Now that people are finding the cafe again, um, are they? Do they, are they? They obviously they're glad to be back. What has changed in the cafe from pre? pandemic to now that they've that they've that they've they, they get to rediscover
1: well it's just so much prettier I mean I'll say that I am very pleased with how it's turned out like it 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 one of our artists and I, I don't know why I said our artists one of the artists who works with us Stuart Legere he came to the cafe and he was like it's stunning it's so sparkly and it's so beautiful he's like this is like cafe season two It's like the network liked season one, they gave you some more money, you gave it a little glow up, and here it is. Like, same vibe, just shinier. And I feel like that is really, this stays true. I mean, the cafe is a remarkable space because it's one of the few remaining non-transactional spaces in the neighborhood. The building used to be a Carnegie Library, and so, as you know, like, anybody can go into a library and hang out there and read books or do whatever, and... Queen West, West Queen West being what it is these days, it's kind of like you can't go in anywhere unless you're ready to spend at least like seven bucks on a latte or $20 on a cocktail. Mm -hmm. And in the cafe, you are welcome to just come in. And I think there are people who have known that and have come back. I think there are people who have never known that and who are discovering that. And I think that, you know, if you are in the mood for a drink, you can't really beat the prices there. Because we're trying not to make it so exclusive that people can't, uh, you know, can't afford to have something if they want it.
0: That's great. That's great. Um, I have always uh, uh, enjoyed uh, the the cafe at the theater center. And I think that that um, a cafe and a theater is such a, a great way to introduce people to the theater, you know, make them comfortable in the room. And then also there's a show like... You know, they, they could sort of see people going in. I know in Hamilton, the Staircase Theatre was sort of my first exposure to, oh, you can have a cafe and a theatre and, and people sort of hang out at the theatre, which is kind of awesome. And I think that is a great door opener, especially for people who maybe don't always go to the theatre.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we have that cafe card program where if you buy five coffees, you get a sixth one free, and then if you buy... 7, 8, 9, 10 more, or six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 more, then you get a ticket to the theater. So it's one of those things where, you know, if people really are against entering the space for reasons of viewing something, we don't force them to take the ticket, mm-hmm. but it's a really good deal. And yeah, it's important for us that people, like people don't even know that that is a theater. A lot of people are like, oh, this is my favorite cafe, and oh. I come here all the time. <laughs> and then they, a matinee will happen, and they're like, why are all these people in here? And we're like, well... We're doing a show and they're like, there are shows happening here? Like, yeah. But I like that about it. Like, I like that no one's forcing it down anybody's throat. I like that it's like, you know, it's doing its duty as a cafe bar that people are not aware that it serves any other function. You know, like that. I feel like we're doing our job if that's how people feel about it. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's 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 mm, it's it's not snobbish.
1: No, no, definitely not. I don't. I never want that. I never want to curate a space that feels unwelcoming. I never want to curate a space that feels like it's only for certain people. Like, it is for everyone. Like, that space is for everyone. And Ashlyn and I, you know, all of us at the Theatre Centre, we believe really strongly that we are but stewards of this resource. Like, we don't own it. It's not ours, you know. We are here to take care of it. And part of its function in the city's ecology is to be a space for people. It is. It's for you. Without the people, what are we doing?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. That's amazing, um, Liza. I want to thank you for for joining me uh, this evening. Uh, uh, it's been a great conversation. Thanks so much for for your time and 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 for this great festival.
1: I am so excited.
0: This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember... If you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at stageworthypod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Rickaby, and as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy.